Goldigger podcast series, a series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian Rugby Union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian Rugby Union and find a path forward to fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrett, and welcome to episode 31. Here we are, tearing away into 2022. Super Rugby Pacific is surging through for a, for a second round. Australian teams are enjoying some wins, which is always good. Uh, however, the, the spectre of the Kiwis is in the distance, and they're not too far away. And of course, it's never too early for people to start talking about their ideal Wallaby team, now that uh, a training squad was announced by Dave Rennie some time ago. The feedback from the last couple of episodes of The C Word, Part 1 and 2, has been fantastic. It's generated a lot of discussion, which is sort of what I wanted, and I'm getting you know a lot of questions from people, certainly after our video as well, uh, that we released on YouTube entitled The Rise and Fall of Australian Rugby Explained. Please check it out if you haven't. And as a follow-on to that, today's guest was actually introduced to me by virtue of the release of that video. The guest is Stuart Lancaster, former England head coach and now senior coach at Leinster Rugby Club in Ireland. And it's very apt for me to be talking to Stuart as Leinster is currently the most cohesive professional rugby club in the world. And they have an amazing academy and an amazing structure around that. And unsurprisingly, Leinster in the last 12 months and probably for some time further have been effectively making up the majority of the Irish national rugby team, who you could argue are at least in the top three or four teams in the world right now, especially after they knocked off the All Blacks last year. So this is my discussion with Stuart. Uh, I think it was a very fascinating and insightful discussion. We talk about cohesion, but we also dig into his journey as a coach through the English RFU system all the way through to coaching England. And we get incredible insight and detail from him uh, about the Australian system and what he as an outsider sees as, you know, our opportunities and strengths. So please keep any questions coming through about anything from the last two episodes and uh, there will be more news on the film. Um, We are, I know I keep saying this, we are hoping to make some announcements uh, within the next month, Uh, some pretty exciting announcements. Uh, The film's definitely coming out this year. It's just a question of getting confirmation on when and where so in the meantime this is me and Stuart Lancaster having a chat Stuart I I do appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat to you Um, it's been uh, a a very interesting couple of weeks not just for me personally but in rugby as well I've found with a lot of competitions i always find it interesting when the southern and northern hemisphere um you know cross over with sort of the six nations and then the beginning of super rugby and all that sort of stuff um and as, as an australian in london it's sort of it's always interesting uh soaking up the northern hemisphere uh rugby uh festival atmosphere that is the six nations so um you know i, I do appreciate you taking the time because i know you're busy through the season but um you know welcome and and please let me I know most of my listeners will know exactly who you are and, and, and your history, but I, I guess I, I always ask this of my guests is just a bit of, about how you got into rugby, how you fell into the game, what, what drew you to the sport and, um, and, and when it, where it went from there. Yeah, yeah, no, happy to do that. Um, 
so I, I started playing rugby when I was 10 years old. Um, I went, uh, I was born on a farm, a small uh, dairy farm in Cumbria, which just border between England and Scotland. And my dad went to a boarding school called St. Bede's, which is on the west coast of Cumbria. And uh, my older brother, two years older than me, he was there. And I went as a 10-year-old um, as a boarder there. And they played rugby. So essentially, that was how I how I started. Um, we generally played rugby in the first term. We played sevens in the second term and then cricket in the in the summer term. Mm. And that was pretty much my life for, for eight years. Um, I gravitated uh, into the sort of captain of the rugby team. Um, we had a... For a small school, we had a successful team. We did well in the sevens. Um, we beat some of the big schools. Um, and that then led into a uh, university where I did a sports science degree. Continued to play uh, university. We'd also play club rugby for a club called Wakefield uh, and then Headingley in Leeds. Um, and this was, was like 88 to 91. Mm. So the game went professional in 95. And I sort of played through the amateur area obviously, as the game went professional um, in the 90s. Um, and then I ended up getting injured in 2000. Um, and an opportunity came to coach at that time. Uh, so it was probably coincidental, really, but that was the end of my sort of playing career and the start of my coaching career. Was it a very, well, I don't know, was it a, was it a, 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 a scary or a, or a sort of precarious decision to sort of leave a career and, and jump into being a professional sportsman? Well, I only took a sabbatical for a year. So the game was professional. I was a PE teacher mm. uh, in, in a school in Wakefield. Um, so I was teaching, you know, I'm playing part-time. So training Tuesday, training Thursday, playing Saturday. Yeah. Um, and then when I was 28, the club went full-time and I took a sabbatical from school. I went full-time for a year. But actually, <clears throat> it was probably the least enjoyable year of my career because <laughs> I played the least. I had too much time on my hands and I missed teaching, to be honest. So... Yeah. Uh, I happily went back into teaching and then it was that year that I got injured. Um, so I was never really out of employment. I was never really a full-time rugby player. And then was it risky leaving teaching, going into coaching? Um, it probably would have been more risky, but the RFU had set up a series of national academies in England yeah. uh, and I was in charge of the regional academy uh, for the county of Yorkshire. And that gave me the security because I knew I was employed not necessarily by Leeds, well, the county has been played by the RFU. Obviously, that was a, it had a decent, you know, track record of you know employment and looking after people, and so it was a bit of a risk. But I was I was confident that the RFU were on firm foundations. Yeah, it's interesting. When I, I was sort of curious about your start into coaching, and you spent a lot of time within an, a you know, I guess an academy environment. Do you, do you find looking back that was a really beneficial time as a first time coach because of the, I suppose the the environment that academies just naturally produce where there's so much um, focus on all aspects of the game and you're working with, you know, I guess, youth players and, 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 and as a coach, you're also developing? I think, I think it depends on the academy. I think it depends on the setup. So I was generally, um, I had a blank sheet of paper so I could set up any way I wanted, really. Mm. So I set up an under-19 and an under-21 team. So I evolved those teams, really, but also... Um, I set up elite player development centres, so uh, one in the north, one in the east, one in the south, one in the west of Yorkshire. Um, and I would run sort of development sessions for coaches and players in those areas. Um, plus then I had the Tuesday, Thursday night coaching of the 19s and 21s. We had games every week, um, 30, 30 games a year. So 
yes is the answer because I probably spent the majority of the five years as kind of a manager coaching, coaching either under 17s, under 19s, under 21s, playing games, learning from the review of the game, previewing the next opposition. Um, Whereas I know some academy managers uh, end up just in leadership and managerial positions, so they don't do a lot of coaching, number one. Uh, Or number two, their club's philosophy is to develop a small group of players, Mm. not enough to make a team, and give them individual development programs and send them away to be coached by someone else. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's definitely the right way to go if you want to develop your skills as a coach. It depends very much on the on the program that you're in. But the program I was in, which was probably I guess self self formed, was hugely beneficial for me, and it opened up the opportunity to become the head coach of the club team I was at in um, 2005, which was you know I was 35 years old at that point, and mm. I'd also been on lots of coaching courses through the RFU and I'd been developed and I'd been attached coach to England Saxons in twenties. Um, I'd been on a uh, level five coaching qualification, done my level ones to four, you know, so I'd had a lot of development by that stage and uh, I felt ready for the, for the senior job when it came. Yeah. Where, so where, where would say the RFU or even yourself draw their influence from when, you know, you're setting, setting all these programs up and these structures from scratch in a sport that's only really, you know, five, six years into professionalism? Well, I, I was lucky because I, I was born, uh, I, well, I was sorry, I, I was, I was uh, um, brought up in Leeds. So oh. I did my degree in Leeds. And obviously Leeds would be a big rugby league area. Course, you know, it would be yeah. one, of, one of the bigger, one of the bigger rugby league towns in, in England. And obviously Leeds Rhinos would, would you know, you'd know them in Australia, you know, in terms yeah. of like the quality they have. And our training facility was shared with Leeds Rhinos. So Leeds Rhinos at the time had the best academy. And, you know, that likes of, likes of Kevin Sinfield, Dan McGuire, Rob Burrow, all those lads that came through together. Mm. Um, they were in their sort of evolution as I was academy manager at Leeds Tykes. We shared the same building. So I learned a lot from, from them, from the coaching uh, team there. Uh, Tony Smith was coach at the time. Uh, Daryl Powell, Brian McLennan. You know, there were excellent coaches there that I could... I could learn from. I could look at their academy program. Um, I was mentored by Brian Ashton, who became the England, who was the England coach, 2007. Um, So he was a big influence on me as an academy manager. Kevin Bowring, head of coach development. He was the former Wales coach and he was, again, influential in my development as a coach. And a guy called Bill Bezik, who's a sports psychologist, who was a former basketball coach who coached with... um, Steve McLaren at uh, Manchester United and Alex Ferguson. So, you know, I had lots of influences to draw on. Yeah. But probably if you're asking me now, where was the biggest one? It was probably Leeds Rhinos, I would say. It's actually interesting you say that because I, I spoke with um, uh, former Wallaby and Brumbies coach Rod McQueen, and he said a very similar thing at basically at that point in 96, 97, where the two sports that they probably looked at the most was not just rugby league, but also Australian rules football just in terms of from the point of view of, you know, all of a sudden you need to fill an entire program, an entire week for guys that are used to training twice a week. Where do you start? You know, you get up in the morning, what do you do? What's the gym programs? What are the, all these sorts of things. And I I do sort of wonder whether Australia certainly benefited by having those sports at the time because it gave the wallabies and yeah. For sure. You know, I would say, you know, rugby league had just been professional more than rugby union. I've been professional a hell of a lot longer. And, uh, mm. you know, I just happened to be on the doorstep of a really good professional programme. Um, you mentioned Ron McQueen. It's interesting because 
it was around that time, and he probably wouldn't even remember this. Um, we took our kids to Australia on a on a holiday, and um, I'm forever like trying to develop myself as a coach. And I was a young coach at the time. You know, I would say, I don't know, it must have been 2005, 2006, maybe. And I, re- I read his book, Rob McQueen's book. And there was, I think there was like some contact email for someone associated mm. with him. So I chased it up and chased it up. Anyway, ultimately ended up, managed to get hold of him himself. And he invited me to his house. Mm. Um, so I met him and had uh, a day with him, his wife. He get, I remember he gave my son... Uh, Dan, who's 20 now, um, you know, a little wallaby pin badge that he came from his thing. And it was, mm. it was an amazing day. And uh, but yeah, there's my Robert Queen story. I think I've been to the same house because I interviewed him for the doco. And, and you're right, he's a very, very lovely, open yeah. and, and very warm sort of guy. And, and, and certainly, uh, I think... It is interesting looking at those sorts of, um, you know, he's, he's lived in Moringa his life, he's a Northern Beaches guy, and like the rugby community around that area is super strong as as you're probably aware and 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 you know guys like him i think drew on their experiences much like you did with Leeds, i guess um at their yeah. formative stages uh i think i mean i look at i, I myself am actually and i'm you know i've been living here for a few years but i've actually started doing the rfu level one um course and I, i'm actually blown away by the the amount of information, the level of detail, the, the resources, the access, it, it is, it must be first class in the world, I can only assume. Um, you know, how do you, how do you see that as being important to English rugby in terms of what the RFU have done to try and not just promote it for players, but presumably also bring in, you know, first-time coaches? Yeah, I mean, I mean... If it wasn't for Kevin Barron, there's no way I would have got the job as national coach of England. I wouldn't be coaching here at Leinster now. You know, um, he, he, you know, he was the first um, fully appointed full-time professional coach developer, I think, in the, in the world. So the RFU at the time, this is probably 2001, 2002, were definitely ahead of the game in terms of coach development. Yeah. Um, and his appointment and his ability to mentor and develop the likes of me as the academy managers who ultimately became the the next the next in the next few years the head coaches of the you know the club teams in England and obviously the age grade program the national programs um, the way in which they sort of mentored us and developed us and he drew on his experiences but also experience of lots of good coaches around there which you know became a real um, feeding pot for us really as, as young coaches uh, I think it, it, they were definitely ahead of the game. Um, I think the RFU underneath that, the sort of community level, level one, level two, level three coaching, I think that's been a constant evolution. Again, some very, very good people in the in the system in England who understand the difference between professional coaching and community coaching mm. and set appropriate courses um, out there. One of the challenges in England, obviously I'm, I'm in Ireland now, so we're dealing with a lot um, smaller population, a lot tighter provincial structure, um, and but you'd argue that Ireland were doing probably over and above what their their, their potential should be because of yeah. the quality of the coaching in the country. And part of the reason for that is because um, a lot of the because of the um, the tightness of the provincial structure, the trickle down effect from the top through to say like Joe Schmidt being at Leinster, um, it trickles down through into the schools program, the clubs program, you know his philosophy within within Leinster, for example, or 
Michael Checker was here, obviously myself, Leo, Felipe Contepomi. You know what I mean? There's a real um, knowledge share that happens within Ireland that, yeah. that doesn't get dissipated in the same way it does in England. Because England is such a bigger country in terms of its spread of geography and also where rugby's played. Whereas in Ireland, obviously you've got pockets, like in Leinster, in Dublin in particular, you've got this pocket of uh, schools that are high-performing that produce players for the Leinster Academy, which produce players for Leinster and Ireland. So England do a really good job, but part of the challenge in England is the is the diversity of the uh, the clubs across the country. Yeah, and I guess that's something, I mean, I was going to lead into talking about obviously being coach of England. Is It, it seems like you've got benefits where you've got huge amounts of talent to choose from, lots of clubs, but then, of course, the challenges of the fact that everything is dispersed amongst different clubs, different structures, different philosophies. And, you know, what is the challenge in any role, even for, a, I guess, sort of, um, you know, any kind of coach of a national team to uh, bring those different players and, 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 and styles even and, and structures into a playing group? You know, it just seems like it's uh, obviously a head coach must be, you know, one of the peaks, but also it's so many challenges. Whereas with a club, you've got an entire season with a playing group that you can really work towards, you know, a common goal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 um, the ability to create true cohesion in a team Mm. um, at international level in England is a challenge. There's no doubt. Um, And it takes time, you know, it takes time, it takes consistency, it takes good coaching. Uh, And obviously that time is always compromised because there's only 10 games a year generally. You know, there's maybe 11 at the most, you know, with the November internationals, the, the Six Nations and the, the Summer Series. Mm. Um, and the rest of the time, they're with the clubs. And as you say, there are 12 or 13 different clubs. They all play slightly differently. And then you pull them together for a week's camp and suddenly you're into must-win games at, at Six Nations. So, you know, the longer you have the players, definitely um, the more cohesive uh, they become. In Ireland, obviously here now, you know, 11 of the Leinster team are in the Ireland team. So... Mm. You know, the cohesion factor, um, as Ben, who I know you've, you've spoken to, you know, is, is, is hugely advantageous in Ireland. The central contracted system, similar to, I guess, the New Zealand model as well. Um, but in England, in England, it, it, it definitely is a challenge. Um, but it's not impossible to achieve. You know, you have got, and people talk about the resources that England have. It's not, it's not about the money. It's about the time. Yeah. You know, what you need as a national coach you need time with the best players to develop cohesion and understanding of your game plan to create the skills to um, to play to play that game um, under pressure, and so mm. it sticks. So it sticks, you know, unconsciously in the toughest of moments, in the highest of pressures, you know, in the biggest of games. Was being um, England under twenty coach um, beneficial in that regard because it sort of gave you access to see that? next generation coming through and perhaps, you know, spend time with them over a few seasons? Yeah, so I, so I, left, I left Leeds um, in 2007 and mm. I became head of elite player development, which was basically the job was to develop all the academies within England, so it was 14 academies, mm. um, and manage the international age grade programme. So England 16s, England 18s, England 20s, England 7s, England women. Yeah. <coughs> and what you're talking about, I was actually the coach of England Saxons, so it was the England 18, right. not the England yeah. 20s. So I was the tier just below. So at that point, we had like five games a year. We had two games in the Six Nations. We had three games on the Churchill Cup in the summer. 
And yeah, you're right. That was hugely beneficial to me personally because it did two things. It gave me access to the senior squad and seeing the evolution and how Martin Johnson was developing the team between 2007 and 2011. And then it allowed me to coach and work with the players who were to be the future England players or help the players who'd been dropped from the senior squad down to try and mm. get them back in there. So, um, yeah, for me as a coach, whilst it wasn't as much coaching as I'd done previously at Leeds, it was more access at the highest level with the best players, which was great for my development for sure. Yeah, I mean, it seems, you know, it, it's interesting looking at, I guess, obviously, you know, Eddie Jones is, 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 is as, as always, you know, probably the most high-pressure <laughs> position in the world in, in after a Six Nations, but he, I know, is very much a, 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 has adopted the philosophy that, that Ben Dale and others have, have put forward about cohesion, and, you know, it seems as though he's, he's just got eyes for next September, and, you know, whether or not he's on track, I guess everyone will find out, but um, it does seem like the, the, the coaches who are under pressure are, are often under huge amounts of pressure to perform now, as opposed to looking for two, three years ahead, which is when really teams can mature. And it just seems certainly in a national team environment, I don't know whether there's more pressure there than there would be say at a, at a club where a board might actually, you know, allow you to, to put in, 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 in place a, a long-term vision and strategy. Yeah. I think, I think it depends, it depends on, it depends on the club board what they're mm. looking for. But most club boards are similar to most international teams in that they want success now and they want success in the future. So that's mm. your challenge, to win in the, in the short term and build a team for the long term. So I took over in 2011 and um, there was a lot of the players from 2011 World Cup squad who I felt wouldn't make 2015. So I decided rather than you know drop two at the top and bring two in at the bottom, to, mm. to have a clean start with a new group of players and build from that point onwards to try and develop, you know, their international experience between 2011 and 2015. And, and ideally with the age profile, that group would stay together till 2019. Yeah. Um, so I think in my first game in charge against Scotland, there was 220 caps in the starting 15. Yeah. So when you consider Alan Wynne Jones has got 150 on his own, mm. you know, most Johnny Saxon just reached hundred, Keen Healy's reached hundred, Richard McCaw, however many hundred and whatever, you know, 220 in the whole team. And, you know, I knew I had about 45 to 50 games to try and develop the experience in that group. And obviously there was going to be, you know, new players emerging and one or two finishing, but generally it was yeah. a young team. And, um, you know, we didn't quite achieve it in 2015, obviously, as, as history tells us, but I think Eddie pretty much kept the same group together bar, bar one or two changes to, to 2019. And I think, you know, England saw the, the rewards of that. So... Um, it's it was a challenge though because because my first Six Nations we won four out of five, which is yeah. great. Um, but then we went to South Africa. I think we we lost one, lost two, drew one, um, and then we played in the November internationals and we lost against South Africa and Australia. Just hmm. and suddenly the narrative was building that this isn't a team that can win. But then fortunately we beat the All Blacks. Um, we sent board a bit of bit of breathing space. It's funny. I mean, I wanted to sort of touch upon that because it is, you know, it, you know, I look at the the 2015 World Cup, and obviously as an Aussie, it was you know great for us. But like, it wasn't a bad team that you had. And it was eight eight months later, they beat Australia three 0 in in Australia. And 
I, you know, I, you know, I think of the the Waratahs at the moment in New South Wales. You know, they had a, a they didn't win a game last year, and then all of a sudden this year they're three and two, and they've got the same group of players. They've got a new coach, but the same group of players. And so, I'm sort of curious to know from a coach's perspective how often that happens, where one coach comes in and and builds up and perhaps goes through the painful times, and then puts in place something that actually comes into fruition a, a, a year or two later. But you know, the credits already been passed on. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think there's, there's definitely some some truth to that. You know, obviously that wasn't my master plan. The plan was to to stay in the job till 2019, and you know, mm. particularly being a home World Cup, you know, I felt we had the level of experience and talent by that point to do better than we did. I mean, the reality was it wasn't the Australia game; it was the Wales game that cost us really. We, were, we lost 28 mm. 25 when you know we, we probably should have won that game um, if we played it ten times. We'd win it nine times at ten, but we didn't on the day. And I thought Australia, you know, Michael Checker came in maybe 18 months before. Um, Matt Gitto seemed to be a huge influence at that point. Some players came back from overseas and suddenly Australia hit their straps and deservedly got to the final, didn't they? You know, they were yeah. they played some excellent rugby that World Cup. But that 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 group of players then changed, didn't they, very quickly. And um, England, you know, Eddie did a great job coming in for the Six Nations. Um, and I remember watching that series, the 2016 series that you're talking about, um, and it was almost as if Australia was refusing to like kick the ball out, or mm. you know, it was like these high scoring 40 odd, 40 odd games. Um, so I, I, I haven't, I haven't had the benefit to to talk to Michael Check. I'd love to one day, but it, it does, on the face of it, appear as though he had a perhaps a similar plan to when you started as a coach, coach whereby he, you know, had a, you know, what was in many people's book a, a successful start to his career um getting to the, the final but then he really had to start again because he did lose a lot of players um you know the matt gittos and adonashi coopers of the world i think retired and well retired from international rugby and um it was a rebuild and and then you know it was a very different three or four years um yeah. leading up to 2019 but yeah. yeah it is sort of you know i'm i guess you know we've, we've put this video out there which looks at cohesion and one of the biggest thing is just time shared between players and I think you know what what I find fascinating about this process is it started as me looking to at Australian rugby and looking at well, what has happened to Australian rugby and what's the rationale because it, as fans we sort of scratch our head a bit knowing where we were 20 years ago but it has really led me down this path of looking at other countries and other systems you know England's I, I find to be a fascinating case study but now also Ireland and of course, Leinster, where you're at, um, and you know Ben had mentioned this on our last episode, and and I think only people from his company are, and maybe those that are interested in it would find this fascinating. But Leinster is now the most cohesive professional rugby club in the world, um, and it's it's surely no surprise that Ireland are, are playing some of the best rugby they've played in a few years. So, I guess sort of you know look you know what are your sort of reflections about that going from say a, a, a head coach role to now working with a club which I guess sort of, you know, has far more control over the way in which it can bring players through from, from schools and all the way through the pathway. Yeah, I mean, I, I, saw, I saw the England job. Uh, I was trying to develop that within the national team, with a national framework. And I think, you know, the way in which we played England 18s, England 20s, you know, the coaches that I worked with who were working at that level, um, you know, we were all building that and working towards that. Um, obviously, things changed when I left and a lot of other 
sort of those younger coaches, age group coaches left as well. And it, it um, uh, I never, I never, it never really made any sense to me why, when all that development and uh, work that had been put into me personally as a coach or into other coaches who subsequently left as well, um, was never shared back within the RFU and, and England rugby. So essentially what happened in 2016, I left, came to Leinster, Andy Farrell left, took over, well, became assistant coach at Ireland. Mike Cart left, went to Italy, but subsequently Ireland. Graham Rounty left and went to Munster. So all four of us ended up in Ireland. <laughs> I'm not saying that's the reason why Ireland was successful, but there's definitely been a, a huge amount of IP that was transferred mm. at that point. Yeah. Um, and I came into a system not really understanding why Leinster was so strong, but having been there a year, um, I soon became, it soon became clear to me, and it was, it was based on a number of factors. There's a very, very strong um, school system in Leinster. You know, the, the Leinster Schools Cup is a, is a hugely sought-after trophy, and essentially it's created a series of what I call it was mini academies within each and every school within the Leinster region. So um, you've got these... Uh, well-educated coaches. Um, you've got proper development programs and time put into young players, so that by the time they're eighteen, um, they're playing in big games where the result matters. It's on national TV, five or six thousand people watching. Really well-coached preview, review, SNC programs, pre-seasons, you know, as well as their education. <coughs> so, so for a start, you've got this really strong um, player base coming through. Um, which then leads into the um, the sub academy. So it's a later in in Ireland. It's later special specialization than it is in England. In England, I would know this because obviously I was involved in the program. But my son's in the program. I was a twenty year old player in the twenties. Hmm. So in England, they tend to make the decision at eighteen. Whereas in Ireland, you're only joining the sub academy at eighteen. So you do two years in the sub academy. So they're not even training with Leinster. We've already got forty five senior players. And 20 academy players on top of that. So we've got 65 players, 95% of whom are from Leinster. So the only players from outside of Leinster at the moment are Michael Alatoa, came from the Crusaders, um, obviously an Aussie. Um, you've got Jameson Gibson Park, James Lowe, who now is qualified anyway. Scott Fardy was with us last year, obviously. Yep. Um, Eastern Sea before, but that's it. Other than that, they're from, from Leinster. So you've got this 45 senior players, 20 academy. These sub-academy lads who are playing for Ireland 20s, then they join the academy at 20 and they do three years in the academy. So at this point, they're maybe year one, year two university or doing some form of qualification. They're playing men's club rugby on a weekly basis. They're getting coached within our academy system with the coaches who are passing on what they've learned from us. So there's a uh, connection between what we're doing and what they're doing. Um, they can see the pathway because... There's player after player who've been given Leinster senior caps, who've gone on to become European players for Leinster, who've gone on to become Irish internationals, who've gone on to become British and Irish Lions. So there's hope for them. Um, we create uh, opportunities for them to train with us. We invite them to reviews and previews. Um, and ultimately, they once they're in the academy, they get a chance to train with us. And because we have so many players playing for Ireland, you know, more players playing for Ireland, any national team than any other club team, it creates a huge window during the Six Nations that you just had for these younger players now to play for Leinster when normally they wouldn't normally get the chance. So yes. you've got this, but I could call it by accident or by design, um, this, this system that is almost self-perpetuating now. In Leinster, mm. you know, it's, it's not hugely expensive because these players are on 
you know, relatively low wages for, for academy contracts. And, but gradually, they, obviously their salaries increase. But we're not buying in talent. You know, we develop our own talent. And that talent then um, is well coached, you know, mm. through, through the Leinster programme. I mean, that's something that, you know, if you ask me what's one of the reasons why Ireland is successful, because there's good coaches. And, and this is something for you to think about possibly in, in terms of the Australia um, landscape as well, is that there's diversity of coaching opinions and, and uh, philosophies. So if you took Leinster alone, Leo from um, Ireland, me mm. from, come from England, Felipe Contepomi from Argentina, and Robin McBride from Wales, 13, 14 years with Warren Gatland. So that's the four of us alone, you know, in, in, in Leinster, never mind in the other provinces as well. So we've got a real synergy and we involve the academy players. So it's, it's, a small, it's a small country, but if you look at the Six Nations, you look at them beating Australia, uh, 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 New Zealand, sorry, in, in November, you look at Ireland 20s, they've just gone and won the Grand Slam. Mm. It's, 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 a, it's a very good system now and it's, it's more closely aligned to New Zealand than any other country, I would say. Look, I, I think you could easily... Uh, you know, I look at the the, the decline of Australian rugby in the last two decades, and you could probably flip that over on a graph, and and you'd almost got the the mirror, which is the, the the rise of Irish rugby. And you know, I think there was a probably the crossover point in that was it 2018 when Ireland came to Australia, and, and I think won probably their first series uh, win in Australia, and, and 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 of course they beat the All Blacks and uh, that year, and they. It is it is fascinating to me, and I think you, you made a great point because Ireland it has a lot of parallels with Australia in terms of I think the number of players, uh, the fact that the sport itself is not the the, the most popular sport. It's no. sort of it's after um, Gaelic football and hurling, and you know which is similar to Australia with with league and, and AFL. Um, I guess sort of you know what what I'm what I'm curious to know is is whether with with Ireland, um, you know, you're obviously Leinster, which is a strong club, but do do you think sort of Irish Fans and Irish sort of rugby people really get behind the uh, the the regional teams that much, or that is there so much focus on the island national team, and that that sort of trickles down to what gives those regional teams the the financing and the support to to basically create um, you know great development tiers of rugby to to then upsurge up into the national team again, which is at odds with say England where. Club competition is is really given a lot of precedence, and there's so much focus on at that level. Yeah, no, no. I think I think the the provincial structure in Ireland is strong, so people care about playing for Leinster. There's a very strong identity about playing for Leinster. Very, equally strong playing for Munster, playing for Connacht, playing for Ulster. So you've got Ireland split into these four geographical regions, but politically and you know historically, there's a huge amount of pride associated with each of those four provinces. So. We've got uh, Connacht this weekend, um, which will be a sellout at their place. We play Munster next weekend down at Tone Park, sellout. We played mm. Ulster last week, sellout. You know, it's 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 vibrant, uh, mm. and people care about it. And um, so, and, and but the the IRFU they do centrally contract in the top players, and they have um, there's an understanding that we're here to support the national team as well. So. Um, the players have just played in the Six Nations. They're going to be given the week off, so even though we're playing a you know, big game. Whereas mm. in England, you know, I suspect most of the internationals will be straight back into club rugby this weekend. So that sense of looking after your players 
for club and country in Ireland is definitely a strength of Ireland's as well. Um, so yeah, I think I think it works both ways. So Ireland, I refuse to support the provincial structure, but the provincial structure is strong enough to feed the national team as well. Um, so yeah, it's it's, it's a good model, um, and there's no reason why it shouldn't stay a successful model in my opinion as long as they keep good coaches and good people involved yeah and i mean obviously the the competition um i mean the pro four well now urc formerly pro 14 has obviously been a bit of a game changer for all the 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 celtic countries and even i guess italy because you know it really provides that base to just you know obviously the derbies in ireland are going to be the probably the biggest things on the calendar but all these other competitions, all these other teams you get to play provide just a really solid base for teams to well, have. They provide diversity of challenge as a coach. Yeah. So you're not playing just against the same teams all the time. So, you know, we will play teams from Italy, teams from Scotland, teams from Wales. We'll play teams from South Africa. We'll go in there in two weeks' time, play mm. the Stormers and the Sharks. In Europe, we'll play teams from France, we to Toulouse and Clermont and La Rochelle and whatever else, we'll play teams from England. You know, we played Bath not too long ago, we played Montpellier. So, you know, I'm trying to draw the comparison between what, what I find as a coach here and what Australia have in terms of the, you know, the, the, it, well, if we go back to the start, you know, the, the, the development of young players, the development, I'm not, and I don't know, you're more qualified than me to comment, but I mean, I did apply uh, for the Queensland Reds job in 2016 after I finished with England and right. came down for an interview. Um, I didn't get it, um, which is probably right, probably right for, for, for me at the time, you know, family-wise, the kids are 15 and 16 and, and the Reds, I think, were, you know, going through their own transition anyway. So it didn't work out, but I don't know, I'd have done my homework at that point about Queensland Reds and I would know Australia well enough. And, you know, the, the structure in Australia, but also the rugby league. You know, I know a lot of people in Australia for coaching-wise. Mm. And, you know, I think about, you know, the age-grade structure in Australia, the coaching, the diversity of talent, you know, how, how you develop talent through into your, you know, super rugby teams, who they play against, you know, the club country stuff and everything else, you know. So there's definitely lessons there for Australia, I think, that could be learned from, from the from the Irish model as an example, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting you mentioned, you, you know, you, you're looking at Queensland. I, I think Queensland is, is is still our strongest province, um, which even though it's not the biggest, but it certainly has performed the best over the last three to four decades. And you can pretty much draw a correlation between Queensland becoming stronger in the 70s and the Wallabies um, improving. And I think the, the net effect... Back, of that, back, back, does not come back to the cohesion thing that we've mm. talked about, you know, that sort of number of... Um, Queensland players that played in that successful team, and you know, yeah. also that like I look when I so I went there and I went and looked around the schools um, for my son actually because he was you know in Brisbane Boys Grammar School. I went to TSS and all. I was like, these are like proper good yeah. rugby schools, and I'm sure you've got a good club club program as well that underpins. Yeah. You know, that, that, well, that, I think so I think I think the GP, the GPS system, which is the the schools, which you know I guess is on. It's some, I don't know what be on par with the, the Leinster schools, but it certainly is the premium schoolboy in both Brisbane and Sydney schoolboy yeah. competition. I think one of the arguments, though, is that it, the, the administration hasn't done enough to make rugby more accessible and, and have more public or what we would call yeah. public schools. Yeah. 
um, state schools um, having yeah. rugby programs, and that's yeah. and that that goes back to look at the, looking at teams in the nineteen sixties and seventies where there was a lot of kids from state schools playing rugby and a lot more rugby competitions between the private and public, and that's been lost. And I think that's a big area that needs to be rectified. But certainly, Queensland has a very strong schools competition. Uh, a small, you know, eight to nine team club competition, which is their Premier League. And then after that is is Queensland. I think what Australia is missing, and this is the big argument now, and it, it, I think it's a financial commercial decision, uh, a, a problem, is there is there's not that next tier between Super Rugby and Club Rugby, which is what I think you have with, say, Leinster A and that academy area, and in certainly in, in England with your, you know, multiple divisions where, you know, you can have a, a professional, then a, a reserve grade professional, and then a semi-professional league. And that that's sort of what I think has been one of the biggest, uh, that and the fact that we probably just don't play as many games. But I, I think your point about the diversity of games is... is sorry, sorry, just on that. Cool. Can I come back to that? Just before yeah. you jump on the diversity, because I agree with you to a point, but 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 um, I have a reasonable knowledge of this at the moment, because I'm actually my son potentially... Um, might be coming out now. It obviously, it's got to depend how it how it uh, plays out, contract and everything else. But um, to play in the uh, the Brisbane competition yep. for on the teams, um, and so I've obviously been looking into it. In in um, Ireland, if you're not playing for Leinster and you're one of those younger players, you play in the All Ireland League, which is a men's competition. It's uh, Tuesday, Thursday, play Saturday. Mm. I don't think it's overly different from. The Premier Competition in Brisbane, for example, or what is it? Shoot Shield, is it? In, yeah, in Qu- Shoot Shield in Sydney, and um, yeah, in uh, Sydney. Quick, so, so, so I think are. I think w- one of the problems in England is that the young players just don't play enough club footy. Mm. And, and whereas, if Australia could find a way to develop the the strength of that Premier Competition or the Shoot Shield by the Super Rugby players who are playing, going back to play every week and playing week in week out with good, you know, men men's teams who are mm. playing Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, whatever, and you make that league, it doesn't have to be professional, but you make it as good as possible. You put good coaches into every, in the in the ARU, support it with really good coaching infrastructure and support, and you make that as professional as it can be without it being full-time, because you can't obviously mm. afford to play all the players and get them to give up work and everything. That would fill surely a, a hole that, that would fill the development hole that's there and because the same exists in England, there are so many lads who play 19, 20, 21, uh, England 20s or whatever, but then can't get picked for their premiership team because it's full of internationals or overseas players or whoever. Mm. And they're just left like being 24th man or not playing rugby, or yeah. do you know what I mean? And in Ireland, in Ireland, that doesn't happen as much because, because if they're not playing for us, they're playing for UCD or Trinity or Clontarf or. One right. of the AL teams, and that's that's the way it should be. In respect to the Shoot Shield in Sydney, you know, at the moment, one of the issues is it's a it's a historic competition. It's you know, it's got some amazing players and, and legacy clubs, but you know, it's within sort of twelve teams. I think maybe it's thirteen. After COVID, they they let one, another team sort of enter. It's still only got about four or five teams that end up winning, and there has mm. been a little bit of you know, um, a cycle of, of clubs that have kind of come back. But th- that is their issue is, you know, it probably to, to get to a level where you, you're, you're talking about where it could be that professional yeah. tier. Absolutely, because you've got fans, you've got 
um, brand identity clubs, members, people that, you know, all love these clubs, but, you know, it, it does need a bit of a shake-up. And unfortunately, probably a bit similar to what uh, is going on in Wales, you know, it's it's you've got a, a community and amateur game that actually is still has a lot of control and the, the, the main administration just can't do anything. I think it's, it's run by the Sydney Rugby Union, which is a completely separate yeah. entity. And the same with the clubs, uh, the schools. All the schools are run by separate entities and unions. And I think that's one of the big yeah. issues for Australia is to to yeah. get some sort of alignment between schools clubs you know it would require a lot of different stakeholders all having to get on the same page and that's yeah, one of the yeah, biggest uh, yeah it, it was you sound like you know trying to develop the english club system you know during my one of the first jobs i did you know trying to work with the ind- strong independent schools mm. you know the clubs the championship teams you know etc so it is tough you know and like i say administratively logistically you know the control piece you know uh, the governance who has control of what yeah. is very political sometimes. And my, my advice is always, listen, let's put the player at the centre and do what's right for the player and build mm. everything around that, you know, and the player ultimately, and the goal, if, 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 um, if Australia want to be strong, they need a, national, a, a, a strong national team, and they need strong age-grade teams, they need strong super rugby teams, but they also need a strong club structure that underpins that and strong schools team structure and, and, and put the player at centre and decide what's best for the player and try and work that yeah. way forward would be my advice. It's interesting that, you know, you, you talk about the the level of um, effort that the RFU put into coaching even now in Ireland. I think that's another thing that certainly, you know, we've, we've got some great coaches, but, you know, sometimes I'm not sure if the pathway for coaches has been that clear. And I, and I know having chatted to a few first grade coaches and people who are at the club scene, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't seem to be as structured and streamlined as to where you would go and, and what you would do. And, and, you know, we've got some coaches in Australia who have, have spent time overseas. And I, I think you'll, in fact, I think I was, uh, you'll, you'll be going head to head against uh, one of them at Connaught. And, and, you know, that it's, it is one of those things that I've sort of started to explore a bit further is, is, um, you know, is cohesion within coaches and coaching structures and, you know, pr- coaching progressions, Another factor, not don't just decide from players. And I think at the moment you have a, a strong team in say the, the the Queensland Reds who have got a coach that was with a lot of that players through, um, you know, coaching Queensland country and then moving into the Reds in Brad Thorne and and so, you know, and I, you know, I'm even looking with Leinster. We've also, also got Jim Mackay, who's experienced, yeah. who's been to the UK, who's you know coached the Wallabies, who's you yeah. know been around and and you know developed himself, and I, I you know. I agree with you. You know, I can't, I agree with you. I think, um, you know, I, I would speak to not many Australian coaches, but I do sort of share ideas with one or two of the Super Rugby coaches. Um, yeah. um, I can't help but feel that the support I got, and I don't mean this to be a criticism of the IU or anyone really, but the support I got as a young coach in England was excellent. You know what I mean? And I, if... It's not just about having good players to make a good system, to make a good, successful Australian, you know, sport. It's mm. about having good coaches. And, you know, I passionately believe, and I would say this because I'm a coach, but um, the coaches can make a big difference. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, a really good coach can improve defence, can improve attack, can improve set-piece, can improve cohesion. The way in which you structure your training sessions, the way you coach technical skills, your understanding of the game, your ability to develop starter plays that cause the opposition trouble but lead naturally into phase shape, you know. 
Um, they create enjoyable sessions that make habits stick in the top end players and they create an environment um, of high performance, you know, through mm. the way which they teach, um, their review, their preview processes, their session design is excellent. You know, I, I just think it's so important to invest in coaches and to get the best coaches you can and to have that uh, philosophy shared from the top down. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, Dave Reddy, you know, I'm probably singing from the same hymn sheet as someone like him or Scott Wisemantle or, or Matt Taylor, you know, the guy, the guys who are coaching the Wallabies, you know, that, that ability to work with the Super Rugby coaches, share the knowledge, pass it down through the system so the Super Rugby coaches pass it to the club coaches in Perth or in, you know, Melbourne or Canberra, mm. wherever it is, you know, and that has to be the way to do it. You know, the long-term plan for Australian rugby has to be that. I guess you made me just think of a, a point that I, I discussed with someone and it was talking around central contracting and having, you know, yeah, a sort of a good sort of, not a uniform approach, but certainly, you know, trying to get the national team work with the, the provinces. But how important is it to have a country with, say, like Ireland or Australia, where you've got four or five different teams that do actually develop their own styles? So there's actually almost more of a you know, a diversity of styles that could work rather than having a sort of uniform approach to the way rugby is played across the country. Yeah, no, definitely. You do, you do, you do want that, that diversity um, because it allows the players to problem solve and uh, adapt mm. because, you know, it's... But I, I, you, you can maybe answer this question better than me. How, how much study goes from the Southern Hemisphere on the Northern Hemisphere, for example, the evolution of the game. Um, so the Southern Hemisphere, for me, always had the advantage, always had the athletes, the coaching, mm. and were always ahead of the game. Um, and I'm talking New Zealand now as well. Um, yeah. But I did a podcast not too long ago for a New Zealand um, podcast, and they're asking me about Ireland's victory over New Zealand. And one of the questions I raised, which is a point I raised earlier on, is... Um, is the lack of diversity in New Zealand, the lack of coaches from outside of New Zealand, you know, or, or in Australia, is that a hindrance rather than help now? Because you're not getting any new ideas. You've got anyone challenging going, well, why are you doing this or why are you doing that? Um, and I think that, um, that that has to be something you need to consider, I think, in a high-performance programme. You know, you need, to have, you need to have that diversity of thought um, and opinion uh, in, your, in, your, in, in your coaching setup. So, um, because we, we did a, we did something lockdown with the Crusaders, so um, we did a um, four part four four weeks on the trot with the coaching teams from Leinster and from the Crusaders. Mm. So the first week we presented on Leinster's success factors and the evolution of defence in the Northern Hemisphere. Second week they went on Crusaders' success factors and the evolution of attack in the Southern Hemisphere. The third week we played a virtual game as if we were playing them. So we this is how we try and beat you. And then the fourth weekend they did this is how and then you know so how good is that you know so but you know we we were uh, there were lots of things that we saw in like mm. defensively for example that we wouldn't understand why teams would defend like that yeah um, and can, can I just I, ask it as a, as an aside this is more as a fan and I'm sure people are salivating over this do you ever foresee a, a even if it's an exhibition match a a, a, a future where Leinster and Crusaders or um, Saracens uh, or, is, or even the Brumbies get to play each other? Yeah, no, I think I don't think it's an exhibition. I think it's going to happen. 
Mm. I, I'll be absolutely amazed if, I mean, they've got to get the global calendar sorted, but, yeah. um, and that's easy said than done, I accept. But with, you know, the sort of private investors coming in, the demand for, you know, aligning the global calendar, there's going to be a World Club competition, I think, yeah. Matter of time. within the next, hopefully, five years, I would hope as a minimum. And, you know, I can see, you know, let's say, call it the top six super rugby teams and the top six teams in Europe mm. meeting uh, and playing in a World Club Challenge. I mean, how amazing would that be? That'd be great. I think that's whatever. I think that's the next evolution that people are waiting yeah. for, to be honest with Definitely. you. Definitely. I mean, and I, th- right. I think it would work for both parties because it would give us, like even for us to go to South Africa to play mm. in Durban against the Sharks or to play, you know, against... Um, you know the stormers. You know it's 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 a buzz for the lads. It's a buzz for the you know for the fans. It's something different. You know, mm-hmm. so let's say you know Leinster are playing. You know the Waratahs or you know Saracens are playing the Crusaders. I mean, it's just it's huge. I think to go back to your point, uh, you're exactly right, and I think there it's too early to say because Super Rugby in Australia is in its sort of next early you know, early stages of its next iteration with Super Rugby Pacific. But I've, I've sort of read a few comments from players, mainly also in New Zealand, lamenting the fact that they don't get to play against South Africans as much as anymore, because I think it was a, a different type of contest. And, and you know, I think there is definitely something in the fact that as Australians, we, we only get to play, you know, against European teams, um, you know, in, if you're if you're a wallaby, so you know if you're a a club guy and you, you know you don't play any international football, but you, you're you're a professional playing at one of the other five franchises, yeah, you, you're not really going to get much of a chance to play against European um, and, and now even South African players uh, unless uh, unless you you move there and play there yourself. Yeah, and I, th- I think I think also you know the lo- the loss of the Junior World Cup as well, you know, so you're not even getting. The junior Wallabies playing against England or France or yeah, you know, and, and that's such an important part in the players' development from an international age group player to an international senior player to, to go to France and play in France, you know, under floodlights in Perpignan or mm. you know, in a, in, a, in a World Cup. I mean, that's just, I think that's something they need to bring back, you know, as soon as they can. I know COVID caused cancellation the last two years, yeah. but I would say that's a big. Uh, a big concern if I was well I concern for the Northern Hemisphere but you get a bit more diversity in the Northern Hemisphere because you've got mm. six different countries to play in the Six Nations you know yes. if you're an Australian under 20 player then at the moment I guess you're playing against New Zealand 20s yeah look I think you know that the, hopefully the next if you look at the next five or the next decade in Australia and Southern, Southern, Southern Hemisphere the growth is going to be engaging um, you know the Pacific Nations uh, maybe even Japan and, and who knows, maybe Argentina will, will find a way back into the fold. Because that was certainly, I think, um, while there was probably a criticism from fans that the the expansion of Super Rugby made it really hard to follow because the time zones were just nuts and some of the teams were less known to people. And certainly in Australia, very parochial, was always focused on derbies, less so on playing a team in Argentina. But from a rugby perspective, it was great rugby because you just saw... Um, that that clash of cultures and and mixture of styles and I think hopefully that will we've already seen that to be honest this year with the Fijian draw coming in um, the the minor Pacifica team haven't had much of a chance because they've had a couple of games and who knows maybe the next iteration will be a another team coming in and, and and that perhaps is where the point of difference could be but it might take a few years for that to to start to surface. Uh, 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 just, just just on your on your hard to follow piece 
I know what you're saying because we we in the in the competition last year in our competition mm. we had two pools of seven teams, yeah, um, and then we had the playoff and everything else. And some games became meaningless because we we're in this two pool thing. You know, we just mm. needed one league of like 16 teams, like one to 16, top eight come in the playoffs and blah blah blah. And you know, I got lost in Super Rugby with conferences and yeah, you know, I'd be much preferred it if it had been like right here's there's I don't know 12 teams, 14 teams, and this is. Crusaders are one, and if it's three New Zealand teams are one, two, and three, then that's the way it is. Mm. If you look at our competition at the moment, we're one, Ulster are two, um, Glasgow are three, Munster are four. So there's three Irish teams in the top four, but you yeah. know the South African teams, the Bulls, the Sharks, and so on, they're making the move now because we're having to go out to them and play in the summer mm. and the heat and the altitude. And yeah. you know, at the end of our season, you know, we could come one on the league and end up playing the Bulls or the Sharks in a playoff game, you know, and that's it, but it's easier to follow, you know. There's more sense of like identity with the competition because of this the simplicity of the, yeah. the league table. I know it sounds stupid, but that's well. And, and I, I certainly think the biggest advantage with South Africa is the time zone doesn't change that much, and that's sort of yeah. what what was hard in in. If you're a rugby union fan years ago watching Super Rugby and you wanted to watch your team, you, you might watch them at home, you might watch them at Friday night, and then you got to wait till. 2 a.m. on a Saturday, yeah, yeah. Saturday or Sunday morning to watch them play in, in, in you know, yeah. Pretoria or wherever. And yeah. as opposed to if you follow Rugby League or AFL, you can pretty much put your TV on on Friday night and from yeah. Friday night Monday to night, Sunday, footy is constant and every game overlaps each other at, at, at friendly time zones. And that's, look, that's the challenge now. But I think, um, you know, as again, the point of difference is that you're, you know, those teams, those Aussie rule teams, they're playing local teams. They're not playing internationals. And I think that's the, for me, it's always been the point of difference with rugby union is at least you get to see, you know, your team play someone from France or, or Japan. And and I think, um, I guess, sort of point I wanted to sort of ask you about, because I was just looking at the coaching structure at Leinster. And so you're the senior coach and then you've got obviously head coach and assistant coaches. What's the sort of um, what's the balance? How do you sort of um, arrange that sort of coaching team structure? Does it sort of um, do you all sort of take different areas, or do you sort of you know is, is there sort of a an overlap in the focus? Uh, so essentially, it was a bit, it was semantics at the time really why my title was senior coach. But Leo essentially Leo Collins is the director of rugby, effectively you call him. So his job would be to oversee the whole of the program, so the academy the integration of the young players, the recruitment of new players, the, you know, the selection decisions, um, the board, the media, the commercial, all that sort of stuff. So he looks at the bigger picture. There's a general manager as well, guys, to be, that sits with him. I essentially would be the head coach. Mm. Um, and then Felipe Contepomi would be the backs coach and Robin McBride, the forwards coach. We have a contact skills coach as well. And we've got a head analyst who doubles up as the sort of kicking coach and the, the sort of backfield backfield strategic coach. Um, so that's essentially our coaching team. Um, and um, so if you were to come in on us a Monday morning, um, Leah would probably kick it off with an overview of the week or the month or, you know, things that are going on that need to be addressed. And I would then kick off with, right, here's the review of the game. Here's what we learned. Um, we'd go very quickly then into uh, units, backs and forwards, which I would try and jump into both. Um, I would lead on the preview the first training session on the Monday would be me on the sort of skills and the development of our attacking and defensive game mm. leading into unit sessions. Tuesday would be, again, another sort of big rugby day, but I would lead on the, the first 40 minutes of the rugby 
before we split into units and and that's how it evolves really so it's quite a uh, it was quite a unique way of doing it four or five years ago, but more and more teams are moving to that model. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, you know, with England, I essentially was more a director of rugby than I was the head coach. So I was generally doing mm. what Leo does. Um, so if you're asking me now, what's the more enjoyable job? It's definitely doing what I'm doing now because you're yeah. on the grass all the time. You know, you're coaching all the time. Um, you, you're developing strategies and plans for the next game. And, you know, obviously in, in our competitions, our preseason started in July, so I started coaching in July, and our season finishes in June. So our Super Rugby starts halfway through our season and still finishes before the end of our season. Yeah, yeah. So we're going for eleven months of the year. That's a lot of coaching and a lot of time to think about new sessions and new plans, and you know. But it's it's great because it gives you this old ten thousand hour rule of experience. You know what I mean? So yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, no, it, it, it's enjoyable. It's really enjoyable. I mean, you know, looking at when you started and where you are now, have have you evolved as a coach and, and sort of what, what do you feel that you've had to sort of change? And I'm sort of also interested in the fact that you're probably now coaching players who are back in the day, they, they might have been like yourself, you know, guys that had careers and then made the switch into a professional environment, whereas now you're, you're picking up kids who are almost professional from sort of, you know, the, the moment they left school. Um, how have you had to sort of a change your approach, if if at all? I, th- I think I went I went through various stages. So uh, obviously, I went from a very ha- teaching a teaching job, hands on teaching, hands on coaching, academy job, sort of developed into that sort of leadership and managerial role within England. Mm. Less coaching with the Saxons, England national coach. Lots of periods of quiet game quietness in between international windows development opportunities with other sports. Um, but then this intense coaching period left that and now into Leinster coaching pretty much full-time. So I think I've, um, I'm probably back to where I started really in terms of like where my passion lies. Um, I've definitely improved obviously because just through experience, um, my, my beliefs and philosophy on the game um, probably haven't changed too much. And I was very strongly influenced by the likes of Brian Ash and Bob Dwyer actually interestingly would be another one I met mm. him one time I was in Australia and he, he'd be I actually quoted him not so long ago to our players and they were like Bob Dwyer who's that guy you know they're like um, so uh, but um, you know so a lot of the league influence and everything else you know would be big um, mm. would be big for me um, and so it's implementing all those things now but again doing it with a really talented group of players so mm. I've evolved, I think, in terms of my, my style. I would say I'm more... Um, I study the game a lot, I would say, probably more so than I've ever done. And I think more about coaching, probably more so than I've ever done in terms of like that session design, yeah, how to get habits to stick, what, what are the right habits to create in the first place and right strategy to win at the top-end game. So, um, yeah, I'm probably more, more committed now than I ever, ever have been, even though I've always... You know, loved it. Mm. It, it's certainly your your point about um, thinking about coaching and, and thinking about the designs. It's certainly something that's screened as a well. I don't know if it's different because it's hard. I haven't looked at the Australian coaching um, sort of beginner pathway recently, but certainly when I was doing the RFU um, level one course this last year, is just the the way it really forces you to actually, you know try and be more creative and, and imaginative and, and, and look at ways, different ways in which you can get 
outcomes out of players rather than just being a prescriptive coach that tells people what to do. And I think, I don't know whether sort of, you know, that's more something that just makes it easier for people to get into coaching or whether that's actually indicative of what happens at the higher level. You know, your, your role as a head coach is, is, you know, all these things that happen off the field, but presumably once the game is on, there's a limit to what you can do. You kind of just got to let players go out and, and hopefully, you know, they've got the tools um, to, to do the job. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to hope you're coaching sticks um, yeah. basically. And uh, you know, you've got different styles of coaching, you know, you've got your democratic, you know, asking their opinion, you've got mm. your, um, your pace setting style where you, you know, you're driving them with your energy. Um, you've got your directive style, right? This is the way we're doing it because this is the way that we know that can break down their defense. Um, and you're always flip, uh, flipping between different different styles, you know, on any given session. Um, so understanding where your own strengths are as a coach, where your weaknesses are, having a good team around you that, you know, it's very, I, I don't know many coaches, if any, that, that can coach every aspect of the game. You know, you can't, yeah. very hard to be an expert on the scrum, the lineup, the backfield, the defense and the attack at the same time. <laughs> so having good people around you as well is really important um, that you can debate with. Having a really good group of senior players or players that you can share ideas, and I mean, I'm lucky in that yeah. you know, I've got Johnny Texan for a start, but you know, the majority of the Ireland team have just finished the Six Nations, so yes. I'll always sit down with them. What did you learn? What did you do well? What do you feel you could have done better? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's there for any coach really. But you've got to. One of my advices to young coaches would be go out and search it and go out and ring Rob McQueen like I did. You know what I mean? You've got, yeah. to, you've got to make it happen. You've got to really build build a network of people who are going to help you. On that point, yeah, obviously um, you, you and Andy Farrell who, who worked together in England and now he's sort of in, in charge of, of Ireland and, and then you're with Leinster. You know, is that sort of, you know, is that something, you know, you, you guys still talk and do you sort of work together in any way? And I, I can imagine that for, for players, that must have been good having two coaches that sort of are familiar with each other. Yeah, definitely. Oh, no, I would say for sure. I would say, I, you know, obviously I learned a huge amount from from Andy. You know, we worked together for four years coaching England. I would say he learned a fair bit from me in terms of my yeah. philosophy. And, you know, we sort of evolved together, really, uh, our understanding and beliefs in the game. So then when I came to Leinster, you know, we were always going to be on a similar hymn sheet. We obviously play slightly differently between Ireland and Leinster, but it's not too dis- too dissimilar. So I think it's an advantage to him to have someone like me coaching, you know, a lot of his players when he's not coaching them himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he lives 15 minutes away from me. We got on really well, um, discussed players. Um, but obviously he's got to build, you know, his personality and his style as a head coach. Um, and, uh, and good for him, you know, there's certainly... You know, nothing um, that I'm going to do to stand in his way. If anything, I'm going to do everything to be supportive for him. Yeah. Look, I wanted to wrap it up. I really do appreciate it. Um, I guess, you know, bringing it back to Australia and, you know, as a as someone who's obviously played, um, you know, been against Australia, you, you're now working with Australians and you're, I guess you, you've got, yeah. you know, one or two coming through and, um, you know, from an outsider's perspective, you know, and I'm always curious about, you know, looking at what other people think has 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 happened to Australia, Australian rugby. From an outsider's perspective, what do you see as being Australia's, you know, still competitive advantage, but also challenges that um, stand out? Because I think some people have spoken to me, and you know, obviously you're more more knowledgeable than most people, but many people have just said to me, well, "What's happened? They don't 
quite can't quite figure it out. And you know, sometimes some of these problems are quite multi-layered, but sometimes they're quite simple. But I, I guess, yeah, from your perspective, having dealt with people, worked with people from Australia, you know, what do you see as the big challenge that Australia, Australian rugby needs to sort of um, try and try and straighten out? Well, I'll start with strengths because because you know. From the outside, you know, I look at the quality of the players that have come in through and the quality of players they have in the programme and, you know, they've definitely got a good enough team, you know, mm. in my opinion. Um, if they if they had all the players available, I appreciate this sort of overseas rule and everything else doesn't make it easy for them, but I understand why you'd want to keep, you know, Australians in Australia because I had the same challenge in England. We had a rule where you couldn't pick players who'd gone overseas. So it's complex. Scotland do it slightly differently and maybe Australia will have to look at it differently because, but they're, you know... <laughs> There is more more than enough good players, in my opinion, um, and uh, um, I think they've got a great coaching team at the moment. Um, the team alone is, is only going to get better. Um, I think there'll be plenty of young talent coming through. Obviously, challenge challenge seems to be like holding on to them, not going to rugby league. You know, some of the talented young players seems that seems to be the challenge from what people have said to me. Um, where would I be prioritizing my time if I was, I don't know, in charge of Australian rugby? Um, I would be, um, I guess, from the top down, trying to get as much access time for the national coaches with the players as possible. Mm. Not just like competition time, but training time to give them a good chance to get cohesive because they have got teams, they've got five different teams. They have got players from overseas coming together. So it's going to take a new coaching team, you know, Dave Rennie's coaching team, time to get them to get the habits to stick, as we say. You know, So I'll be trying to do that. I'd be trying to make sure there's a strong alignment between the national coaches and the provincial coaches in the in the and there's a good sharing of information, you know, about why they're doing it, what they're doing it. Um, I'd be reaching out um, to other sports in Australia uh, and other people from outside of Australia. So one of the things the Football Association did well in England, you know, when England uh, appointed Gareth Southgate, they set up a technical advisory board of people who weren't from football. Right. Um, so I was invited on it. Uh, Dave Brailsford, you know, from cycling. Um, Matthew Syed, who wrote the book Bounce, he was on it. Uh, people from the army, people from cricket. Um, you know, so a really diverse group of people. Um, and we, we would meet two or three times a year, and we'd share what we would learn, which the which would ultimately try and help England football be, become successful. So Australia, God, I mean, in terms of the competitive nature of the country and the other teams that exist within Australia, that IP knowledge I'll be definitely tapping into. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I mean, I, I was lucky the other day to be invited onto an interview panel um, for hockey position in, in the UK. And he wasn't an Australian, he was actually a, um, a Kiwi coach I interviewed. And honestly, I made so many notes there. And this guy who I'd never met before, who I hadn't coached hockey before, you know, I thought, God, there's so many similarities to what he said. He was such an impressive coach. And, you know, you've got so many, like Rick Charles, I was thinking about Rick Charles, actually, I'm looking at his book here, you know, and <laughs> so many people in Australia who are who are strong in coaching pedagogy. Um, rugby league coaches, you know, I know Justin Holbrook was at St. Helens. He came to Leinster, spent time with him. Mm. You know, there's, there's coaches I've spent time with from, from Australia. So I would tap into that. Um, I'd be working very hard. Uh, to uh, develop the pathways into those Super Rugby teams and particularly making sure the competitive playing programme within that club structure is as strong as possible and the coaching within that is as good as it can be. Yeah. Um, and I think if you get all that bit right, then 
I think it's easily solvable. Now, I don't think it's a car, it's, not, it's not like it's a car crash anyway. You know, it's not like yeah. Australia that, you know, there's, you know, any team that would play against Australia between now and the World Cup would be thinking, geez, we're in for a tough game here. But you want, you want, don't just want to be competitive. You want to be, you know, number one, don't you? And you mm. want to be, uh, and I think it's achievable because Ireland have shown in a small pool of players with good coaching and good identity and good processes and good development pathways, you can achieve that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's when where I've sort of landed at the end of this process is that all the elements are there. Everything's a lot of the ingredients that made us a very good team and, and world champions on two occasions. It's all still there. It, it's, it's just, I think, Things have been lost in the way. There's, you know, and obviously other countries. I think the biggest thing is other countries have also become a lot better. You know, exactly. I think, and I think yeah. you've you've seen the rise, and you've seen the rise now of 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 that second tier come up, which is great for rugby, but that's something that Australia has to sort of manage. And I think, you know, perhaps part of the focus now is to actually look a bit more outwardly again. And I think, you know, we have the benefit of players and coaches who are uh, working around the world that can you know, bring back that knowledge. And um, yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, look, I, I do appreciate um, your time, Stuart, but also, yeah, your, your insight is, uh, it, you know, fascinating. I, I'm, I'm more fascinated about Leinster. I think I'm, I don't know if anyone's written a book about, I know I read a book about Connaught the other day, but I'd be very fascinated if someone actually um, yeah. uh, could could sort of articulate the, the Leinster story of the last 15 years, because I think it would make for some but, fascinating but, but, reading. I mean, it's, only, it's only recently that, they got to this point. I mean, Munster were the main, and Ulster have had their day. You know, everyone. Yeah. It's just a strong. It's stronger than people give it credit. Um, like in England, you know, when you're in England, you're wrapped up in England club rugby and everything else. But you tend not to pay attention. You think, oh, it's just because they prioritise the European Cup, but it's not. It's more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I'll it's, have it's to. A really good, it's a. It's a really good system. It's a really good system, and it's yeah. a really. It's coached by good coaches and good people. Yeah. Well, look, uh, congratulations with all your efforts so far. Um, best of luck for the rest of the season. And, uh, yeah, mate, thank, thanks once again for having a chat. Uh, I, I really found it very fascinating. No problem. Okay. Excellent. Thanks, Stuart. This is the Gold Digger podcast series, a spin-off from the new feature documentary film, Gold Digger the search for Australian rugby, which will be coming out very soon. Brought to you by me, director and host Matt Durrant. Music from this episode is by Ryan Papahatsis and Brad Vanderlucht from Fade Out Audio and will feature in the upcoming film. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash golddiggerrugby and follow us on Instagram for pretty pictures and Twitter for banal chatter. Till next time. Keep on digging.